Welcome back to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges, and I'm a pediatric hospitalist here at the Medical College of Georgia. I'm excited that we are joined by two guests today. First, we have Rachel Weiser. Rachel is a fourth-year medical student who will soon graduate from MCG and start her pediatric residency at UPMC. Hi, Rachel. How are you? I'm excited to be here, Dr. Hodges. Thanks for having me. Great. And our next guest is Dr. Sharon Bell. Dr. Bell is an associate professor of pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia and the medical director for the Children's Hospital of Georgia Palliative Care and Hospice Program. I've seen firsthand how valuable her services are to our patients here in the hospital, and it's great to have her on the podcast today. Welcome, Dr. Bell. Thank you so much for having me today. To get things started, Dr. Bell, will you tell us what exactly is palliative care and why do pediatricians need to know more about it? So palliative care is a relatively new specialty of medicine. It's been around about 25 years, pediatric palliative care, probably a little less than that. But it is a multidisciplinary approach. It is designed to have kind of two focuses. One is to provide symptom management. That's the specialty as far as the actual clinical medical care that I bring to the table. But the biggest part of what we do is supporting families because families experience their child's illness. It can change the sibling relationship. It can change the child's ability to go to school. And so we want to support the whole family as well as the patient as they deal with a chronic or a life-limiting illness. So good. Yeah, what I gather is palliative care takes the big picture approach to manage those symptoms and the things that cause the most suffering and grief for our families and our patients. Now that we have a basic understanding about palliative care, Rachel, do you want to walk us through our case? Yeah, of course. Thank you, Dr. Hodges. Our patient is a 16-year-old male with cystic fibrosis with severe lung disease, requiring frequent hospitalizations. He presents to the emergency department for new-onset chest pain and shortness of breath. He was found to have a right-sided pneumothorax, and he's admitted for treatment of both his pneumothorax and pulmonary exacerbation. Dr. Bell, knowing that the presence of a pneumothorax is a marker of advanced disease and has been associated with about 50% mortality over the next two years, what can a palliative care specialist offer to a patient like this? One of the most important things palliative care specialists can help bring a family to the point that they can talk about where they are with their disease. Very often the focus in the acute hospital-based medicine becomes we've got this X number of problems and this is what we're going to do to get you out of the hospital and home. But when a patient is dealing with a chronic illness, they need much more than that. And they need somebody to recognize how the symptoms of the disease are affecting their day-to-day functioning. They do need to have honest conversations about what this new change, this pneumothorax, what does this mean for my disease? And what are my options? Where do I want to go with my treatment? And what are the possibilities? How is this going to affect me? Is this going to go away? Or am I going to continue to have challenges related to this? You know, it seems so obvious having those big picture conversations, talk about what's bothering the patient the most, what's limiting their quality of life. But having that palliative care specialist I've seen working with you this past year can be so incredibly helpful for our patients and their families. It seems like such an important role in that conversation just seems so essential to making sure you're taking care of the patient as a whole person, not just their disease. But it also seems like that could be difficult to bring up some of those conversations the first time you're having them. Um, It is very difficult. We talk about in our work about the elephant in the room that everybody knows, everybody is worried that their disease is getting worse. The families are worried how it's affecting their family and affecting the siblings. But 
nobody comes into the open and talk about it. And it's actually often a relief for caregivers, for a medical professional to be willing to have the conversation that there are options here and they don't always have to be the most aggressive option just because we are able to do something doesn't mean that it's the right thing for that particular person in that particular situation. And so laying that out on the table, it is all about what the patient, if they're old enough to make decisions, or the parent or caregiver, what they want for their child. And one of the phrases that I use in talking with families is, I am not here with an agenda or a plan. I am here to hear what you're struggling with and to see how I can help you. But most of all, I want to honor what you want for your child. Wow, that's amazing. So Dr. Bell, you mentioned that the first part of your relationship is symptom management. And in general, what are some of the most burdensome symptoms that you've noticed that affect quality of life and functional status in the pediatric population? Well, the first thing that we always try to address is pain. That is fundamental. If you don't control patients' pain, you're likely not to control their anxiety. You may have agitation. You may have insomnia. A lot of symptoms can stem from poor pain control. So that is important. But we do try to be cautious. There certainly is a huge issue with opioid addiction and overdoses. And so we really try to use adjunctive therapies to help. And that can be physical therapy. It can be therapeutic massage. It can be medications like gabapentin that help with neuropathic pain, but they're not an opioid-containing medicine. Sometimes those are necessary, and we will advocate for those for our patients if their pain is not controlled by other means. But particularly in the chronically ill child, we really want something that is not going to make them sleepy and make them not able to have their normal level of functioning. Behind pain, anxiety is probably the next most bothersome, and it is particularly bothersome at night. When the patients are busy during the day, they're often distracted and their anxiety might not be as bad unless they have to go to the doctor. (laughs) But at nighttime, when everything else is quieter, that's often a time that people really struggle with anxiety and they lay and worry and what's going to happen to me and how is this going to affect me and am I going to be able to go to prom? Am I going to be able to graduate with my high school class? And those are very real concerns for these patients. And to be able to have those discussions and sometimes to help move the world to make them meet their goals. We have put together a high school graduation in a hospital room before because that was what we needed to do and to help meet that patient's goal. Wow, you know, such basic things like pain and anxiety is something we probably don't think about enough for our patients and how important it is to try to control those so they can have a little bit like a normal life. You said that high school graduation, even in a hospital room. Are there any kind of common signs and symptoms in patients that you would think typically would warrant a referral to palliative care? I think looking at their functional status and changes in their functional status is most important. In the pediatric world, that's a little different from the the adult side. And I put together some information when I first started doing pediatric hospice because you have to record ongoing decline in order for them to continue to receive hospice services. And so you look at things like, are they no longer able to attend school for a full day? Are they having to do homebound school or intermittent homebound school? Are they stopping to rest? I know some of my little 
heart failure patients, they'll be sitting while I'm visiting with a mom and getting their history in the home. They may be sitting on the floor playing with a child life specialist and literally during a 45 minute visit, lay down on the floor three times because they're tired and fatigued and can't even play in a sitting position normally. And so looking at those things, any patient who is having an increasing frequency of emergency room visits, an increasing number of hospitalizations, and particularly if those hospitalizations, when they come out of those, that they're not quite getting back to their baseline. That is often a great opportunity to introduce palliative care. So I'm hearing a lot of symptoms that will point to a referral to palliative care once a diagnosis has already been made and a patient is progressing along a disease process. So in our clinical case, we discuss our patient coming in with a clinical exacerbation. How would consulting palliative care during a previous admission or an outpatient clinic visit have possibly affected the quality of care received during that acute condition? So providing extra education for that family and that patient about the disease process, you can often, by having a palliative care person involved, you can improve compliance with medication, improve compliance with treatment. Sometimes there's simple barriers in the home that need to be overcome that might not ever be looked at on the inpatient side, but as a palliative care person, seeing them in the outpatient setting or doing a telehealth visit to home, you are able to identify barriers that, whether supervision, or broken equipment. There's a whole host of things that may be creating a problem for that patient's compliance. But a lot of it is just education and empowering them. Like, I am sorry that you are having to deal with this disease, but I want to help this be less burdensome for you. And so what are the symptoms that are bothering you? And how can we work together to try to keep you from needing to come in for that CF tune-up? Sure. I think it's really important that these aspects that you've talked about in palliative care, they're essential to good medical care. If we're not attending to our patients and their families' symptoms, their anxiety, their pain, we're not going to be able to get that medical intervention to do what we need it to do. The other thing that's important too is that in an ideal world, palliative care is introduced at the time of the patient's diagnosis of a life-limiting illness. And for pediatrics, that's very different than adults because we may follow our patients on palliative care from birth when they may be born with cystic fibrosis or be born with multiple congenital malformations. And we may follow them all the way through and their life expectancy may be till they're 30 or 40 years old. It's still not a normal life expectancy expectancy, but they're going to face challenges from their disease along. And so the limitation really is the number of palliative care providers. That's why it's very important why I want to be at a teaching facility, because I want to empower general pediatricians to be able to provide palliative care. And every physician should be able to provide some basic palliative care, know how to appropriately have a conversation with families about a decline in disease, and to be able to manage symptoms at the end of life and be able to access and support families with coordination of care to make that disease process be less burdensome to them. That's excellent. As general pediatricians, we should all have some tools that we can help our patients that are suffering from severe illnesses and are life-limiting. But I think having your expertise and having palliative care specialists can help facilitate that conversation when we have those children who are having those severe exacerbations. Rachel, do you want to keep working us forward in our case? Yeah, of course. So thinking back to our case, our patient has three siblings at home and his parents must rotate staying with the patient during a prolonged hospitalization and maintaining a semi-normal life at home. 
As this is his third admission for the year, his mom is anxious about his prognosis and feels quite guilty for missing many activities and key moments in her other children's lives. We know these are stressful situations that are difficult for both our patients and their family members. Dr. Bell, do you have any practical tips for screening for psychiatric illness like anxiety and depression that are common in seriously ill children and their caregivers? That's very important because, again, we're treating the whole family. We're not just treating the patient. And you often get some clues when they're on the inpatient setting. That is usually the most anxiety-provoking situation to be in. Kids often have to be stuck more, have more procedures. They're pulled out of their normal environment. And so there's lots of things that can trigger. But it's important to ask the question. Some people are not, and particularly adolescents, are not always going to volunteer that I feel depressed. You may see a depression show up as all of a sudden non-compliance with their treatment or all of a sudden being defiant with their family or being angry all the time. And so if you don't ask those questions and explore those things, then those children are going to go unhelped. I think that's such a unique outlook to have because not all kids know how to express their emotions in those words with depression or anxiety, but also with the stigma, not all kids want to admit that those are the feelings they're experiencing. And it's easy to see if you had an ongoing relationship with a family as a palliative care specialist, you might have insight into what's going on with them. That is really the crux with palliative care is that you have that longitudinal follow-up and you have to build a relationship with that family. You don't come in, and I think there's a lot of misconception on the inpatient side where at one point I've literally had, when I worked on the adult side, they said, we want you to determine code status. Well, that is not a palliative care consult. I want to build a relationship with a family, and that might at some point need to be discussed, but that is certainly not something I'm going to discuss initially because I want to build a relationship over time with a family, advocate for them, and you advocate for a family to work through the quagmire of of the system, and they see you fight for them and fight for their goals for their child then you become their friend, you become their ally, and they're going to be more willing to open up with you about things that are being difficult at home and may be willing to share how this illness in our child is really badly affecting our marriage. And then I can then help that family and help talk about how everybody deals with grief and bereavement differently. So encouraging parents to be considerate of each other and realize that you may be coping well today and you know and dad's not doing well at all that you have to cut each other some slack and to work together rather than pushing each other away but they often need somebody to steer them in that direction to help them work through that sure so you have an adolescent patient that you're following who screens positive for something like depression or anxiety. How is treatment different or similar to maybe children who aren't suffering from a serious illness? Um, I think having a serious illness just compounds the difficulty of treating that. I think it makes it much more difficult. I think one of the roles of palliative care, and it's where our child life members of our team really come in, is you have to teach families to find joy in simpler things sometimes. You can't necessarily make the world happen like they want it to, but if you can help a family and a patient find joy in simple things that, like, I got to go to the park, I got to go outside today. You know, for some people who have bad shortness of breath, they don't tolerate being out in the heat. And so giving them an opportunity to have a special activity that's in an air-conditioned environment is a good thing. And so we really try to tailor the experiences, but a lot of it is helping them 
him to seek joy in the little things and joy in more good days than bad days. In order to do that, you have to understand what does a bad day look like? What does a good day look like? And are there things we can do with our treatment plan that will help there be more good days? Sure. Makes plenty of sense. Another thing I heard you talking about earlier is during your conversation with the family, sort of understanding the barriers that exist at home. And we know that social determinants of health impact all of our patients to a certain degree, but especially so if they suffer from a chronic and life-limiting illness. What are some of the common socioeconomic barriers that you've noticed affect your patients, especially as they approach the end of life? So what you mentioned about the siblings being at home, that is a very difficult thing. If you have a child with a serious illness who is spending a lot of time in the hospital, it might work if that sibling at home is a 16-year-old who just needs to have some groceries put in the house and they can fend for themselves. But if those siblings in the home are two and four years old and that mom is a single parent caregiver, that's a big problem for them to be where they need to be. And that's just compounded because even visitation is so limited now with the COVID restrictions, that's made that even harder. Transportation is a big one. Transportation through Medicaid requires a three-day notice. So I'm going to tell my child that they can get sick on Monday and we can get a doctor's appointment on Friday and I'll be able to get a ride to that appointment. So they call an ambulance for what might not be an ambulance-worthy trip, but it's the only option the patient has. And so they do what they have to do. But having resources, other people to help in the home, insurance is still an issue. It's less problematic for most of our children than it is on the adult side, but that continues to be a barrier. And even with private insurance, sometimes the co-pays and the deductibles are just overwhelming to families. In our state in Georgia, are there any programs that our families can reach out to for financial support when they have children with a serious illness? So that's actually part of the role of the palliative care team. We have a social worker that works on our team and they, um, and even our child life folks are really good at finding resources. And some of that resources is through foundations. There are some that are targeted like the Emerson Rose Foundation is one that is gears their support to children with cardiac diagnoses. But there are ways to find resources, helping put nursing care in place. It's a big rigmarole and a lot of paperwork, but oh, to have someone be able to to stay in the home so that this single mom can go buy groceries, that's a big deal to these families. And so helping them access those resources, follow up is very important. You know, don't tell somebody you're going to fix something and then not follow through. So you have to follow through. Sometimes things get missed or get delayed. And so having somebody that's going to go back and, oh, you didn't get that. Well, let me take care of that. Let me follow through and call the company and find out what happened. Maybe I need to write an appeal letter for an initial denial by an insurance company. They'll often go through when you write that appeal letter. Yeah, I imagine talking to parents about their ability to provide for their children can be a sensitive topic. Do you have any tips about how to screen for their ability to provide these like basic needs like food, housing, transportation? So I kind of approach that as in, and I have had parents occasionally look, well, why are you asking me that? And I just tell them that is part of our standard approach in palliative care is that we want to understand what your challenges are. And so I want to understand how your family works and what are the things that are hard for you and what are the things that you don't have a problem with by the same token. I don't want to be rustling up resources for a family who that's not a challenge for them. I want to be able to help them where they need assistance. 
And so asking the questions, and most people are pretty forthcoming. And if they're uncomfortable with the questions, then it's okay. But most of them, if you build the relationship, a lot of times they will disclose needs over time that they might not tell you in the beginning. But as they get to know you better, they'll be more willing to open up. Hey, could you help us with this? We're really in a tight bind right now. That's the emphasis that I'm hearing so far throughout the discussion is all of the care that you seek to provide is made a little bit easier with that long-term relationship that you build with the patient and the family. Absolutely. It is a key part. And I think particularly with our hospitalist medicine system, that there's a lot of rotation of attendings and all that. I can be a familiar face through multiple hospital stays. I can interface with their home nursing teams, with home hospice teams to provide overall support, even if I'm not directly writing every prescription, I am still contributing to that child's overall care and the support of that family while that child is being cared for. Wow. And you mentioned child life and social work and the multidisciplinary approach that palliative care takes. Are there any other important team members and what role do they typically play? Okay, so another important member is our chaplain services. And it's very important to understand that people have a lot of misconceptions about the role of chaplains. And it is important that they are there to minister to families, however they can minister them. They are not there to impose a particular religion or a particular faith. I always tell the story about one of the hospice chaplains that I worked with, that there was one patient that he was like, oh, I don't need chaplain services. But the team felt like he was really lonesome. He lived by himself and didn't have a family there with him. And so the deal was he would allow the chaplain to come in if the chaplain would come and talk baseball with him. <laughs> and and that's what they did at their visits. They talked about baseball. And But it was another person to provide companionship, to provide a listening ear to that family member. And so in everybody, I, I really encourage most of our chaplains that work in palliative care are specially trained to not impose any particular thing, but just to be there if the family wants to pray. I take my cues from my families. And to me, faith is an important part of what I do, but I take those cues from the family. And if that's clearly important to them, then that can become part of our relationship too, that we share prayer over their child. And I imagine with that long-term relationship, you can intuitively figure out if spiritual matters are important to this family. Mm-hmm. Maybe when you don't have the opportunity to have that long-term relationship, are there any practical tips for how we could screen for our spiritual beliefs important to this family and how we can best serve them with those? It is important, even if you have a very limited period of time, say you become involved in a patient's care that are in the last 48 hours of their life, I start with the symptom management because what is most obvious to the family is this patient's symptoms. And so when you address that, and I might talk about symptoms that we may see, but don't just talk about the symptoms we may see, talk about our tools to make them better. I talk about wanting to honor what they want this to look like. Who do you want to be here? Are there people that we need to get here? How do you want this to look? Do you want your child to die in the hospital? Do you want your child to die in the home setting? To be able to assess. And there are certain religious faiths that they have very, very strict rules and they may have to have a burial within 12 hours. Well, you need to know that. Our chaplains are very helpful with that because they know for a lot of the major faiths. So if a patient tells me this is their faith, the chaplains can help us 
us with what we might need to do to meet the requirements. But a lot of it is you just have to be willing to ask. They're very willing to tell you, but they might not volunteer and tell somebody who doesn't ask. And when their child is acutely ill, that's an overwhelming experience. They might not even have the mental capacity to stop the treating physician and tell them these particular spiritual beliefs are really important to us. Um, So we've got to ask the question. Mm -hmm. We hope that you've enjoyed our conversation thus far with pediatric palliative care specialist, Dr. Sharon Bill. There were so many important clinical pearls that we decided to divide this conversation up into two parts. We hope that you'll stay tuned to hear the second half of our conversation when we discuss pediatric hospice, end-of-life care, and bereavement care for our families who have lost children. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. We look forward to speaking with you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.